Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. This is episode number two, and I'm your host, Stuart McNish. Joining me today is Minister of Housing, Selena Robinson, housing critic, Sam Sullivan, and Vancouver Sun reporter, Dan Fumano, on what governments are doing and can do to influence the housing market, a market that was becoming unaffordable. There's no point in denying the cost of housing in Vancouver was out of sync with earning power. And now, by all accounts, prices are moving in the opposite direction. Joining me now is Minister of Housing, Selena Robinson. Welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Your government has a 30-point plan on how to address the housing issue, which is incredibly complicated, and I don't know that 30 points is going to be enough, but at least it does give you a strategy. How do you outline what that strategy is? Well, certainly when we formed government back in 2017, uh, we recognized, we certainly heard from people throughout the province that housing was a significant issue, housing affordability was a significant issue. There had been uh, a call for a number of years to address it, it wasn't being addressed, it was a priority for us in our government. So the very first thing we did in 2017 was we um, brought in some uh, housing for people who were the most vulnerable, uh, people who were homeless. We brought in the modular housing units, 2,000 of them, put out a call for partnerships with local governments, and that was taken up very, very quickly uh, because we needed to act very, very quickly on it. Uh, but by we knew we had to do more, that that certainly wasn't enough. We'd been hearing from renters that uh, there was certainly no vacancies. We know that many of our major cities had a close to zero vacancy rate and that the system there wasn't fair. We heard that uh, the residential tenancy branch wasn't being responsive. We also heard that uh, there wasn't sort of the right kind of supply. We were certainly hearing that as well. And we certainly knew that the market, this speculative market was a problem and it needed to be reined in. So it was based really on those sort of three areas that we framed our 30 point plan. We mm -hmm. needed to make a system work better for renters and landlords. We needed to, to take a look at that. We needed to make sure we were getting the right kind of supply because, um, you know, condos in the sky that are 600 square feet is really difficult to raise a family in. <laughs> and, and, and we needed to rein in a market that was absolutely out of control. Uh, and so we've uh, targeted actions uh, and we have been acting on, on all cylinders and all areas to address those three, three components. So looking at the response in the marketplace, I see that, yes, the higher end of the market has clearly pulled back. And there's clearly been a focus on below market rental housing for specialized 
groups of people who need that kind of housing. And I think everybody agrees that that is uh, needed to be addressed and will probably continue to need to be addressed for decades to come. We're such a desirable place to live for everybody, and everybody from every socioeconomic group is going to come here. And so we need to take all of that into account. Where I hear a bit of pushback is from the, the those who are working towards having moving into affordable housing. They're going, well, hang on a second. All of a sudden, there's all of these policies that have come into play, and now I can't get into the market. A year and a half ago, I was saving to get the down payment to get into that affordable end. But you add in the federal B20 stress test and, and other changes, ikes, now I can't get into it because I see downward pressure uh, causing pressure on or re rising prices at the lowest end of the affordability part of the scale. Well, I think th this concern has been building for a long time. So it didn't just come out of our 30-point our plan. Uh, but we also recognize that we need the right kind of supply. So part of what we were seeing in terms of this on the supply side really was a lot of six and 700-square-foot condos in the sky, and it wasn't meeting people's needs. So we've done a number of things as part of our 30-point plan. So the first thing we did, uh, well, one of the first things we did was we brought in uh, housing needs assessments. So mm -hmm. I was in local government for a number of years, and I remember saying to developers, who were building those 600-square-foot condos in the sky, expecting Coquitlam families to live in them, which was not going to happen. Um, they were just being rented. Uh, they weren't even being rented out. They were just really safety deposit boxes for people. Um, uh, I remember asking a developer, point blank, so who's buying these 600, 700-square-foot homes? Because I live in Coquitlam. It's as suburban as suburban gets. Mm -hmm. uh, it's you know, family-oriented, all that. And they were saying, well, investors and the market. And they would say, the market is demanding these. And I remember saying, which market? Mm -hmm. And so it really, and so uh, local governments were approving hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units. But families couldn't find anything to buy because the product wasn't available. There just wasn't that kind of product. They were competing. So we, we brought in a needs assessment, a housing needs assessment. Every five years, local governments have to take a look at who are they building for? Who are they doing the land use decision making for? Is it for families? Are they, gonna, are they expecting a lot of downsizing to happen in their communities? Are, are they looking for uh, uh, a certain price point in terms of what people are earning? And providing information to us as provincial government so we can keep track of what, kind, what the housing stock looks like, but also to the development community so that they can be responsive and build for the people who are living in these communities. So it's my understanding in Coquitlam, we are, we are seeing that very shift that you're talking about. I was talking to Steve Darling the other day, and he said, you know, you want to build something, you've got to have families in mind here in Coquitlam now. Okay, great. But from the provincial government's perspective, you really don't have a whole lot of influence over those kinds of decisions because they happen at the municipal level. So how can you help to influence right. that change? That's a very good question. And we've been working very closely with local governments and making sure that we're all on the same page. So we are doing the housing needs assessment. We've also brought in another tool that they've been asking for, which is a rental only zoning. We're the first in, we think, in North America to have this kind of zone that allows local governments, gives them the space to, to protect uh, rental stock, which is also part of the housing continuum. Remember, a lot of people, I don't know about you, but certainly when I moved out of mom and dad's house, I went to rental. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so... I still can't afford a house. <laughs> so again, it's that idea that not everybody want, is, wants to own a home or should own a home. Um, 
people get to make their, you know, those sorts of choices, but we know we absolutely need rental to, to ease some of the pressures, that that's really critical. In fact, I remember the very last door that I knocked on in uh, 2017, it was just the day before the, the election, and I knocked on a door, and there was a, a young couple came to the door, and it's in my neighborhood, and uh, I asked, you know, who lived in the house, and they said, oh, those are my parents, because you have the, vo the voter sheet, and, uh, and I said, well, that's really interesting, tell me about yourself. Well, they were a married couple, and they couldn't find a place to rent, mm -hmm. and they couldn't find a place to buy, and they were uh, wanting to start a family and thinking that just felt weird to be at mom and dad's house living in the basement and, and trying to figure out how they were going to launch. And it's those stories that stay with me as a mm -hmm. minister of housing saying, so how are we, how are we enacting um, opportunities for those families? So one of, our, one of our funds that we put together is for families like that, where we're building affordable homes for those people, affordable rental homes. So we've already got 5,000 of them identified and out the door. So is that money that's going to go to the, the development of that property, or are you going to set it aside that says, well, you as a renter, I'm going to give it to you as a tax credit, because we have a homeowner's grant, and this idea of a renter's credit has been floated around, it, it then at least gives the potential renter the availability or the option of choosing where they want to live. Where well, if it's only going to a particular development, that means that I have to live there. Well, the <laughs> when you think about it, right, the what, what often happens is the rents go up over time, and then your ability to provide some sort of credit is, is, is challenged. Mm -hmm. we, we also know that we absolutely need stock. We need rental stock. The rentals, we haven't had rental built in, in this country for a long time. So you, you don't so tell David says, well, all those apartments that are condos that you were just talking about are actually rental stock. Let's let's make them rental. Well, that's that's certainly one idea, and that's why we have our the the, the uh, speculation uh, and vacancy tax. Right, is about pushing it out into the rental market. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay a tax on that. So we, we recognize that that's, that's part of it. We also recognize that there are people who are, let's say, making families making, let's say, $70,000 a mm -hmm. year. So their ability, they, they need to rent in this market until things sort of settle out, I think, a little bit more. They're, they're going to be challenged. And so where are they going to live? And they're an important part of our economy, mm -hmm. right? They're the people who work in our restaurants, and they're people who might you know, work in, in, in production and in, you know, in some level, or they're, they're young people who are just, you know, trying to find the way new in their careers. Well, one, or they're police officers or exactly. ambulance attendants or firefighters right. who can't live in the community that they're exactly. serving. Exactly. So we so need there, to... there is a real need there. There's no doubt about so it. So we yeah. need a continuum. So this isn't about doing one thing and saying that's going to fix it. It really is a continuum and making sure that we can support uh, the, the, the people who are driving our economy, who are the next generation, who are going to take over from us at some point when we say we're ready to retire, that they have an opportunity to build a life here in British Columbia. And so we need to make sure there's housing for them. I'm happy to hear you say that because I haven't heard those people mentioned a whole lot lately. And I think that those are the people that we need to be addressing. So we talk about that from the rental perspective. What about that same 35 year old couple who's been saving to buy a house and all of a sudden they watch their ability to buy that house um, diminished right. because of the the changes at the right. federal level right. and a whole host Interest of rates. other things that are now making it more challenging for them to enter that right. market. So let me tell you about the housing hub because this is something that's um, very and a very important component of our 30-point plan. So when I was um, in, in, in opposition uh, and I saw what was happening in my community around affordable housing, it was really being eroded and, like I said, suburbia, it's where a lot of young families are, um, I was um, 
I learned from a local faith community, the local church, that they were in partnership with a nonprofit developer. They had very little money to rebuild their church. It was falling apart. They wanted to do something with their land. They were land rich, cash poor. They were working with a nonprofit developer and they pulled together a place where people who have middle income, they were gonna build housing, they were gonna get their church rebuilt and they're gonna do a community amenity. And I thought, well, isn't that amazing? That's so interesting, it really caught my attention. Short time later, I heard about a co-op in my community in Coquitlam where the CMHC money uh, wasn't forthcoming anymore. Uh, and they, uh, their property had several, I think 100 units on it, about 100 units. And their, uh, their uh, building hadn't been properly maintained. Oh. And it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. 300 meters though from a SkyTrain station. Wow. So you can imagine what the land value that this low rise townhouse condo space had. The value was incredible. And I was running, I felt like a chicken with their head cut off, running around trying to find ways to salvage this because they were going to get foreclosed on because they couldn't, they couldn't generate the revenue they needed because a lot of these places were now empty because they were not suitable for living in. And I remember just running around and trying to find either a developer or a, somebody who knew how to put together a pro forma, recognize the value in the land, see if they could leverage the value of the land and build affordability into it. And so it was sort of from those two experiences that we, we gave birth to the, the housing hub. And the housing hub is sort of like Yen to the Matchmaker. Do you remember Fiddler on the Roof and <laughs> yes. Yen to the Matchmaker? Yeah. Well, her job was to bring families together who had shared values and a shared purpose to make a successful marriage. And that's what the housing hub does. It's, it's a part of BC Housing. We have tremendous expertise in BC Housing. They know how to leverage uh, opportunities and we have access to financing. And so without subsidy dollars, they are looking to partners and identifying potential partners to deliver on housing affordability for people that are middle income and to look at innovative ways to do home ownership. Uh, as well as rental. So, it de so each project and, and is unique. And you can do that at the provincial level. Can, I, as you're absolutely. explaining that, I'm going, okay, at the municipal level, I can see that working just fine. But <laughs> We have started doing that. We have one project, uh, four different churches, uh, uh, with the United, the United Church uh, system, uh, one in Nanaimo, one in Coquitlam, one in Richmond, and one in Vancouver. They're all getting rebuilt churches, and they're delivering 414 units of affordable housing of affordable middle-income housing. I'm not, I'm, not, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about subsidized housing, right. I'm talking. Um, and so here, you know, that just provided us with an opportunity to, to test it. We announced the housing hub last spring. We've had a thousand projects come to them, potential projects, they're not all gonna work. Mm -hmm. um, and they are, we have some experts, we have a team that goes through them and identifies ways to leverage land opportunities and build in some housing. So we're working with faith communities, we're working with the nonprofit housing sector, we're working with the private sector, lots of folks in the private sector wanna work with us on these sorts of projects. So there's real opportunity right around the province to deliver. Now, are you able to leverage transit dollars to put uh, conditions on that with different uh, uh, municipal and city jurisdictions to say we're we're bringing we're helping to bring this transit line to you, you have to increase density around. Absolutely, 
That was key. That was key directive from the premier, who said, if we're going to be bringing billions of dollars, uh, mostly you know to Surrey and Vancouver, let's you know the, along these these two lines, uh, we absolutely need them to be working with us, and they have been working with us. They've been good partners, um, and that's absolutely an expectation. Okay, I'm going to run out of time. It's a really uh, broad and complex topic, but I do have to talk to you about the speculation tax. And the one thing about it is that why do you make it like a negative billing option? Like, I, I understand your motivation and everything around that, but for somebody who's going, I've been living in the same house for the last 30 years, and now I have to prove that I'm not guilty as a speculator? Uh, how does that make sense? Well, a, a couple of things I think is really important to recognize. First of all, we do it every year with our homeowner's grant. I do the same thing. You do the same thing. We all do it with our homeowner's grants, right? We get this piece of paper. We have to fill it in. Nothing has changed. I've been mm -hmm. in my house since 1994. Do the same thing. It's the same thing with the speculation tax. It's also it's the, same, the same idea. It's like, now, you also need to remember, I could move out of my house, I could let it sit empty, and I could live somewhere else and let it sit empty, right? Mm -hmm. So things change. So it's about maintaining fairness in the system, and in 10 minutes of my, of my day, when I get a form that says, can you just fill this out so that we know that you're living there and that we know that we don't need to bill you for this, is not a, a, a really big deal. I remember the incredible outrage when one of the uh, mobile phone companies a number of years ago, or cable operators, uh, went with a negative billing option. It was, like, horrendous. Uh, and the, I believe it was an NDP government at the time said, you can't do that. Uh, and so to have an NDP government say, well, we're going to go with that option, it's, it, it, to me, I don't know. It, it just, you know, sits with me in a way that I go... We need to remember operationally, how do we get that information? And I know that the Minister of Finance has been frustrated with the lack of available information, trying to understand, you know, who is who in the zoo living in our communities, that it's really difficult to track, to marry up who's paying taxes where and where are they living. Like, we, we, we don't have a system. I think that was a bit surprising. We thought maybe there would have been some work done to, to collate that information. And so this is part of that work that needs to happen. Clearly, you're passionate about this, and I think that you yes. really throw yourself into it. It's incredible. I wish that I had two hours to have this conversation. You can with invite you. me back. Will you come back? In, in a second. There's lots okay. to talk about. We've got some interesting ideas about how we innovate in terms of buildings so that it's more affordable. We've been doing some work around how do we make local governments more responsive to, to buildings. So there's lots to talk about, Stu, anytime. Okay, great. So thank you for coming in. Thank you for having uh, me. I really appreciate it. So coming up next is former Minister of Housing and current housing critic Sam Sullivan, who contends the solution lies in a relaxing of density bylaws and incentives to increase supply. Joining me now is Sam Sullivan. Sam, you are the housing critic. You had been the housing minister under the uh, government of uh, Christy Clark, and now you are the housing critic. When you take a look at what the NDP has done in the time since they took over, what's been your reaction? Well, they have a 30-point plan, and basically it follows a very honorable tradition of trying to go after demand and not going after supply. You know, so basically there is not a single point in there that deals with supply for average British Columbians. There's, it's mostly demand, uh, taxing, you know, we're going to tax our way out of this issue. Uh, there is some supply for special populations, mm -hmm. seniors, Aboriginal, disability, uh, but Homeless. nothing for, yeah, 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 for special populations, very important, but nothing for 
average folks. And uh, it's very troubling for me that uh, this is not getting us where we need to go. So in other words, you think they're going in the wrong direction? Absolutely. What is the right direction? Supply, 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 supply. But how, how do we help to create that supply? It's not just as easy as saying, well, let's, let's make it happen. Because as we know, there are uh, rules and regulations, there's permitting processes, there's a development process. There are all these things that are standing in the way of, of, of uh, speeding that up and creating that supply that continues to meet the demand of people who want to move here to Vancouver. Well, what I've done is I've gone over the, the history of the, the uh, lower mainland, basically, Vancouver. And uh, there was a time when we were creating supply and a very, very flexible supply system. Uh, it was just before the, the 70, 73 was when the West End blew up. You know, it was a suburban area. And then uh, demand really increased and all this density happened. Uh, and you got all this neighborhood centers happening all around the city, and you can see them, 57th and Camby out on 10th and uh, near UBC. You know, you've, uh, there's about six residential towers in Kitsilino Heights there, and, uh, you know, Carisdale, et cetera. Uh, but then came in uh, this new regime. It was basically a revolution. It uh, said, we're never going to let the West End happen again. It was very anti-density. And we've been living with that ever since. Well, back in those days, I'm sure that you can remember, and I, uh, people were saying, well, when we densify like that, it's like we're putting people into little cages and they're never going to be able right. to survive. That's I mean, this was the said. mantra. This was the worst possible thing that you could do, that people would, would rebel against it. And yet we wind up with a scene now that looks like that that's just over your shoulder. Exactly. And people are going, oh, yes, we need to densify. So which one is it? Well, in 73, it was uh, very virulently anti-density. And at that point, I think we had about 70% of our residential land was in single house uh, form. And today, 70% of our land is in single house form. Uh, the, we basically put uh, sprinkled frozen pixie dust on the city, and whatever was, is. Now, the only densification that happened was in the industrial areas mm -hmm. because there's no neighbors, no, nobody would complain. So as we've deindustrialized, and there's hardly any industrial land left, and some, somebody said, geez, don't, don't we need to have somebody working around here making stuff? And uh, so there was, they tried to put the brakes on, but even in the last few years, they've been in deindustrializing. Almost uh, most of the most of the, uh, the, the increased supply has come on industrial land. They're still doing it. Mm-hmm. So, but we're in this situation now. We need uh, more housing. As you say, we need more supply because the demand remains consistent. What, as a government, do you, would, would you have continued to do uh, if you were still minister to increase that supply that isn't being done now? problem is that supply really is the responsibility of local governments. So we need to help local governments. They're in a tough situation. You know, a lot of these bylaws and processes were put in place to stop densification, and they're living with that. 
So uh, there are things we could do to change the government processes that would help them. Uh, you know, right now the whole thing is built to stop density. Mm-hmm. And the, the, there's an unlevel playing field. It's, but what can the provincial government do to turn that around if, as you say, it becomes a municipal responsibility and the, and the citizens of that municipality go, eh, but we don't want that densification? Yes, uh, there are, there's lots of room for density, for example, with this new uh, transit line, the Broadway corridor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's wrong that uh, the, the citizens of the province invest heavily in an area with transit and don't get the local government uh, paying back by making it useful, you know, by, by densifying so that it actually is uh, being used. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's uh, something I'd like to see. My own uh, suggestion is that we take the old city of Vancouver, so it goes right up to 16th, you know, down to Trafalgar, up to Nanaimo, and densify that because that was always, you know, uh, the the culture of the old city. Uh, you know, that was uh, before all these three cities amalgamated, and really make that the priority. Um, the other thing that I've suggested is we look at the structure of local government. And normally, when you try to design a government, you would uh, respect the executive, legislative, and judicial functions. Uh, Vancouver doesn't do that. Our our cities do not have this separation. The legislative, the city council, does executive and judicial. Not only do they create the bylaws uh, to have development, uh, they actually make decisions on individual developments. Mm -hmm. That's wrong. Uh, Anybody could look at that with uh, Political Science 101 and say, that shouldn't be there should be another body that actually makes decisions on individual developments. And that could be a, a judicial tribunal. And that would take the heat off the legislators, the city councillors, and give that judicial uh, decision to a different body. So we agree that we need greater supply. Do you believe that that will stabilize prices on its own? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... What about the way that this government has gone about imposing taxes, saying uh, we're going to put in an empty home tax, we're going to, uh, or a speculation tax, as they call it, the school tax, anything over $3 million. Is that really actually helping to create affordable housing? No, I've watched this for 30, 40 years, and governments will do anything but supply. They will try every other thing there is uh, you know, foreign buyers tax and uh, empty yeah, but home was, tax. That was your government that brought yes, that in. Yes, it was. I'm yeah. embarrassed to say. But uh, you know that that's it's just. I understand the motivation. It is hard politically to do this. It's much easier to just say let's try to you know deal with demand. Uh, the fact is that you know people are coming. Uh, people like it here. That's why all of us are here. And uh, we will have increased demand. So when we take a look at what I believe has been the impact of the taxes, you know, the speculation tax, the empty uh, school tax, especially on homes over $3 million, money has moved out of that market and it's moved into the the area of the market that they were supposed to be making more affordable. And so it's doing exactly the opposite. It's so So, typical. But then how do you, if you come into power, uh, make changes on that? 
Well, this is called the law of unintended consequences, and governments often will kill the things they try to love. You know, uh, the heritage programs that we put in place have actually caused developers to go after these old buildings and basically turn them into Disneyland versions of, of what they were. Uh, so they try to, uh, you know, help with affordability by putting these taxes on the high-value homes, pushing all the demand to the lower affordable homes, and pushing those prices up. And meanwhile, the people who have these high-value homes, their prices go down. That means their taxes go down, and the taxes actually get put on to the lower, more affordable homes. You know, this is kind of a perverse consequence as well. Because you, you know, you pay based on your relative value in the, in the city. So uh, it's it's madness, um, you know, and it things have to get bad enough, I guess, before governments will do something. The very real problem we have here, though, is still housing unaffordability. And when you take a look at the consequences of that, it's not just that you know a young person says, "Well, I want to be able to buy a home." They look at uh, the cost of housing, whether it's rental or buying, in relationship to the amount of money that they're paid. And we know in Vancouver, oddly enough, we have high unaffordability and we have lower than national uh, incomes, for even for people who are uh, professionals. Um, we don't pay as well in Vancouver. We need to, and, and so then the impact is on business. They have to pay more. Small businesses have to pay more. <laughs> The, the compounding series of problems of having unaffordable housing really are a problem. And so let's say you assume the role of, of Minister of Housing, should there be a change in government, how do you go about making that housing more affordable so that the entire system works better? Well, um, the, the most important thing you do is read the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Commission's uh, report on examining escalating house prices in large metropolitan areas. 30 PhD uh, masters uh, people took a year, studied it, and uh, came up with a lot of good recommendations, a lot of good concerns. One of the concerns is you, we're, you know, we could have a crisis here if, if we have a big drop, you know, a precipitous drop, and then you find all these people with mortgages I can't afford them. This could be serious. So you have to be careful how you do this. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be careful about warning against that as well because, you know, uh, the, the underlying fundamentals around uh, lending in Canada and in British Columbia are that people uh, who have borrowed the money for their homes can't afford it even though if it's just. So it's not like the subprime crisis that we saw in the United States going back 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. No, and we know interest rates are going up. And that's going to really put a lot of pressure on people. So we have to be careful. My thought is that we really focus on transit areas and, and, and provide a lot of high-density housing. So it's not really taking a lot of low-density housing off the market. It's really focusing in these areas that really are the best for the environment anyways. You know, when you concentrate uh, people in a, a very concentrated metropolitan area, that's where you get all the benefits. And so what role can the provincial government uh, take in helping to facilitate and make that happen? 
Because as you pointed out, it is a municipal responsibility. Yeah, well, I think there really needs to be quid pro quo from local governments that they say, you know, if you're getting this major multi-billion dollar investment in transportation, you have to reciprocate by, let's see, some some good densification in those areas. But uh, I think they also have a, a real tough time with the way the public hearings are set up and such. And I think we could offer them an option that you, for certain areas, you could use this other option in which you would have a separated judicial function where a judicial tribunal would actually make those decisions. You know, you'd maybe make some broad uh, statements about where this should be going, and then the judicial tribunal would take it from there and make sure we get the density we need. So just before we wrap up, what's your analysis of where we're at right at the moment? How would you characterize where we're at in housing in the Lower Mainland and then in the province as a whole? Because, you know, it's really easy for us to say, yes, the Lower Mainland, because that's where the greatest uh, population is and where we see some of the biggest challenges. But these issues are spreading out to other uh, jurisdictions around the province. Yeah, no, it's uh, the, the situation is tragic for a whole generation of young people. It's really awful what they have to deal with and the despair that I I hear from them. We need to take this very seriously and we need to proceed very clearly with densification, supply, and um, you gotta do it in a politically uh, uh, way that people can handle. So it's gonna take some really careful and uh, skilled work to do this. That's an unfortunate note to end on. Thanks, Sam, for coming in and doing this. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll be back in a moment. Joining me now is Dan Fumano from the Vancouver Sun. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Stuart. You cover City Hall, and of course a big part of that is, uh, you know, what is City Hall doing and its relationship to real estate market. From your perspective, well, let's just talk about uh, what it looks like right now. We've got a new government there, kind of led by Mayor Kennedy Stewart, but, you know, he doesn't have all the votes on council. So, you know, what are you anticipating will be kind of policies moving forward from this, you know, this City Hall government? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a pretty different look than what we've seen for the last the last few decades really at city hall it's been a long time since you've had an independent mayor mm-hmm. um and a long time since there hasn't been a majority on council so the previous mayor gregor robertson his party vision had a majority of votes for all three of his terms all 10 years he was the mayor kennedy stewart as you say doesn't have all the votes in fact he has exactly one vote out of 11 he has the same number of votes as any other individual councillor and he has no kind of caucus like he doesn't have a party whereas there's a five-member NPA caucus and a three-member green caucus green caucus and uh and then also a cope and a one city councillor so it's been interesting just in the early days of this new government they've only kind of had a handful of meetings at this point they were sworn in in November and they've only had a handful of council meetings but they pretty much all got elected on housing 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 that was the dominant issue in the uh campaign last year so, and what's kind of interesting is despite the diversity on council of party affiliations and kind of political backgrounds, they do seem to be largely aligned around some of their ideas. One of the very first things they did was uh, to approve a plan um, uh, to move forward with a citywide plan. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time, very long decades since Vancouver's had a citywide plan. Well, so we still don't have an official city plan, do we? 
No, I mean, I think the yeah. last that will what they were saying in the preamble to this motion that they passed uh, in November was that there hasn't been a proper citywide plan put together since I think the 1920s or 1930s or something. It's a fairly different city now than it was yeah. at that time. In the 90s, they started working on a comprehensive city plan, but I don't think it was ever completed. Mm -hmm. And then so since then, it's kind of been this uh, patchwork of different area plans. And so this was something, again, despite all these different parties being represented on council, they unanimously supported this idea. They were all really excited about it. It's hard to say what, it, this might take years and years to kind of put this plan together, but um, that's one of the first things they've. And, and City Hall seems to be singing off the same song sheet as the provincial government in the sense that they're saying affordability, access to rental housing, yeah. uh, some special interest housing for yeah. those who are disenfranchised. Uh, the, those seem to be the, the key areas. What's their plan of attack? Well, as you know, I mean, the provincial government, we've got a relatively new provincial government considering that the previous party had been in power for 16 years. So the BCNDP had their 30-point plan that they unveiled last year, I guess? Around the budget time. Yeah, around the budget. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's as you, it kind of does largely fall in line in some ways with what the city government, especially the mayor, is proposing. The mayor is proposing a huge increase in the amount of nonprofit housing, largely rental, mostly, yeah, I guess all rental yeah but directed uh, at low income directed at low but also middle income people learning as much as like households earning i think i can't remember the numbers offhand but i think it's somewhere um they want how they want to build a lot of housing for the most disenfranchised mm -hmm. temporary modular housing get people off the streets and into out of shelters and into actual homes right mm -hmm. it's a big difference between being in a shelter it's temporary being in a home so there's a lot of temporary modular housing going up that has uh, 600 units in vancouver basically uh that's come in after the provincial government put up money for that um, but then they also want to target housing for people earning, I think it's 30000 to $80,000 a year, households earning in that range, because a lot of those families have had trouble uh, in recent years, not just in Vancouver, but in other metro municipalities, the capital region around Victoria. A lot of parts of BC, the bigger urban areas, have uh, become unaffordable, even for people making kind of what were previously considered decent middle-class incomes. So they want to target those families as well, building housing for them. And so what's the underlying philosophy behind that? Like, why is it so important that we do that? Like, I believe that it is important because, you know, you, you shut people out. But, but what seems to be the underlying philosophy saying, we have to create rental housing that is affordable to a broad spectrum of people, especially the, like those who are working and are going, uh. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I think I think that is that's what it is. You, you you don't want to. The fear is that you don't want to have a place where working people, working families, can't make a go of things, and they just give up and go somewhere else, right? Um, uh, well, uh, you you know, and in that, uh, I think you know we have people who are emergency uh, personnel, mm -hmm. uh, police, mm -hmm. fire, ambulance they make reasonably good wages, but a lot of them don't live in the city. Well, what happens when we have a major disaster and we have to call them in? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Where are they coming from? Yeah. If further can, and further afield. Yeah. Yeah. And if they can't live in the city in which they work and protect, then we've got uh, a serious problem. So I, I think there's value in doing that. How likely are they going to be able to do this, especially within the fairly aggressive timelines that they've set for themselves? That's hard to predict. But I mean, I have talked to say folks at the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. Um, and they're, 
cautiously optimistic. They say that um, Kennedy Stewart and the current council, they've got something going for them that the previous councils didn't, which is kind of an alignment of senior governments, provincial and federal, that have all basically ponied up billions of dollars to get into the housing game. Historically, uh, the Canadian federal government and the BC provincial government, various provincial governments, invested in housing through the 1960s, 70s, 80s, developments like, say, False Creek South, you know, big, lots of co-op housing, mixed income kinds of developments and communities. That really stopped in the mid-90s under a previous uh, federal liberal government, right? Right. John Cretchen brought a kind of a halt to that. Yeah. yeah. And then... You know, after Ottawa got out of the game, then Victoria and the various provincial governments got out of the game. And that that has kind of been the situation for a long time. Um, of, of course, it was during the previous civic administration under Gregor Robertson thing that the affordability, you know, Vancouver was always kind of an expensive place to be. But it kind of went from being an expensive place to a full on crisis. As you say, if people like cops and firefighters, say teachers, nurses, people making good incomes, if they can't afford to live anywhere near where they work, it's when it starts to get. Um, mm -hmm. I guess more concerning to a broader range of people. And I guess that's when people started calling it a crisis. So Gregor Robertson's previous government, the situation got a lot worse under them. Of course, as they always said, a lot of it wasn't necessarily directly in their control. There's global forces shaping this. And Vancouver is not the only city dealing with affordability crisis. You've got everywhere from Sydney or Hong Kong. San Francisco. San Francisco is crazy. It, it is as bad as Vancouver, if not worse. Probably um, worse. Yeah. One thing that's different in San Francisco, of course, is average wages are higher. Mm -hmm. But that's a bit misleading, too, because... So Gil Kelly is the head of planning in uh, Vancouver, right? He's the, um, uh, yeah, the chief planner in Vancouver. And he only came to the job about two years ago, I think, and he came from San Francisco. And that was one of the things when they unveiled... I guess it was last year, uh, the city unveiled their big 10-year housing strategy at the city level. And he was saying his experience in San Francisco where, of course, there's been a housing crisis for a while, was different because you've got high wages for people in the tech industry. But it's kind of becoming this tale of two cities down there where if you work in the tech industry or you benefit from it, say you're a lawyer or you work for a law firm that bills the tech industry or an accounting firm, mm -hmm. you, you get some kind of benefit from the tech industry, then you're making tons of money. But, of course, that doesn't really benefit teachers, cops, firefighters. They make the same wages, and you obviously can't have a city without people like that and so teachers are having to commute hours and hours each way mm -hmm. to teach the kids of these people making massive salaries it's so Gil Kelly said it was a bit different in Vancouver where the average salaries aren't actually that high mm -hmm. and we seem to be having a housing market that was just out of whack with the incomes people were earning yeah. being and Gil Kelly was um probably more forthright in saying that he thinks global demand for our real estate people who live elsewhere in other countries investing or buying real estate here he, he said was having a big effect and so that's one reason vancouver wanted to try to control the demand for real estate and then the provinces uh, made big measure big moves to control demand as well mm -hmm. so I, you alluded to the fact that the province comes along after the federal government that you mm -hmm. know the federal government introduces the b20 uh stress test right. um and then the provincial government comes along and adds in a variety of other different taxes to try and like calm down that market how does that impact what's happening in the city of vancouver and by extension i mean whatever we see happen in the city of vancouver does have an impact sure. into the surrounding or the greater vancouver area so so, and probably even beyond. Yeah, I mean, into the you know, the rest east of the Fraser province, Valley and yeah. the interior and the rest of the province. But 
presumably to some extent. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, as you say, like measures taken both at the federal and provincial level to dampen the market and control the seem, I mean, seem to have had that desired effect, which some people see as a good thing or some people see as a bad thing. But we've seen, you know, uh, sales have home sales have declined dramatically. I can't remember the numbers offhand. I'm not sure, but uh, they're down. They're down significantly. <laughs> 35, 40 percent at, at a minimum, depending on the neighborhood sure. that you're looking at. And especially in the higher end of the market. Right. right. They've slowed right down. Which is an interesting topic. Let's take that little sidebar. Sure. On that because in targeting the high end, are we actually making the uh, the so-called affordability uh, uh, segment of the market actually more affordable? Or are we driving people out of the high end and into there and then heating up that part of the market? I've heard different people say different things about that. I kind of think it makes sense what you hear some folks say is that no. Because so so you... It's they're all all these different housing types are part of the same ecosystem mm-hmm. in Vancouver, Burnaby. If you've got like sort of a region, and let's say the demand has slowed right down, so single detached houses on the west side of Vancouver in say Dunbar and Carisdale have had a dramatic. Just this week, people got their property assessments right, and a lot of those single detached homeowners, some of whom might have lived there for thirty years and mm-hmm. bought in a fraction of what it's worth now, they've seen significant drops in their property. Now, people might say, well, if it's gone from $4.5 million to $3.5 million, it's still not affordable. But the people who maybe a generation ago, say a family of two public school teachers, might have been able to buy a house in Dunbar a generation ago. Now, that's out of the question. But maybe, you know, a, high, a higher income earner maybe now could afford that $3.5 million, and so they're not going to be competing for a bungalow on the east side. So maybe two public school teachers could afford a bungalow on the east side. And now they're not going to be competing with a big earner for that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, a student who might have lived in the basement of that bungalow uh, can afford that. And then, I mean, one of the things we heard at Vancouver City Hall, I think it was a year, year and a half ago, we heard an update on the SRO stock. And this was something that popped, stood up to me. They were seeing way more students and service industry workers living in SROs in the downtown east side. So SROs typically were supposed to be housing of last resort, people who were on the verge of being homeless. But they were finding that a lot of the rooms were being taken up by people who previously might have lived in basement suites. But they'd been priced out of basement suites because people who were living in basement suites were people who had previously been living in maybe renting a house. So all these things are connected. Right. And so I'm the first time hearing about that. I'm sympathetic to that view. It makes sense to me. Yes. You keep pushing people down. Yeah. (laughs) Are we going to see more of like sort of like the Golden Girls kind of like seniors uh, saying, "Okay, well, four or five of us are going to move into a house now Yeah, um, maybe uh, because we can't afford it on our own. Um, And then at some point you get too many people into a home and then you start to run into bylaws that say, no, you can't have four or five more people who aren't related to one another living in a home. That's one of the things the city does want to change. It's in its 10-year plan. So I guess staff, I believe, are working, toiling away at this now. I mean, last year they unveiled the plan. They said this is the result of a year and a half or two years of consultation or something and planning. And here's the broad strokes of the plan. Now we're going to get to work on the nitty-gritty and the bylaws. And that is one of the things, expanding options for, I think they call it co-housing or whatever. Um, and that's one of the things they want to exp- uh, open up. I mean, and it's something that you would traditionally see in certain cultures and you'd have multiple generations of one family, say an Indian family or a Greek or Italian family it would not be uncommon. A generation ago, they would have a big house, it's, you know, look Grandview Woodlands, you'd have Italian families with four generations living in one house, a huge house. And then now a lot of those houses have been split up into multiple units, which is 
a, a good housing type as well. Mm -hmm. But that's one thing they want to look at, maybe having a couple different families who aren't necessarily related, or say five university students or five seniors, a Golden Girls type. They should they should have a Golden Girls bylaw. Be a good right. name for it. Yeah, it would be. Um, because, you know, we have to come up with creative forms of housing yeah. so that we can live and work in the same area. Otherwise, the stress on everything else becomes too much. And I think that the co-housing, it's something that actually doesn't get talked about that much, but it's a it's a interesting idea. It's kind of creative. One benefit to it, you hear housing activists and stuff, sometimes one thing they point out is the most affordable, like the cheapest kind of housing, and the most green, the most ecologically friendly kind of housing is the housing that's already there. Yeah. Like, you can't, it's very hard to build affordable housing. You, you preserve it. Yeah. So if you've got an old, big, huge house in Kitsilano or or Sunset or, you know, Kensington Cedar Cottage, a big house that could comfortably house maybe four or five people, but it's not zoned for that. Um, if you change the bylaws to allow people to live together, even if they're not, um, you know, in the same family, you can have a, a building that's already there all of a sudden housing way more people overnight. So that's a creative kind of solution. So maybe with this council, because they're going to have to work together, uh, the need for creative solutions, we're going to see quite an interesting uh, housing market, and you're going to have the front row seat watching yeah. it all. <laughs> I think it's, there's going to be no shortage of stuff to write about, even just in the first few weeks of meetings. They've had so many motions. I mean, there's so many new faces there. There's only two returning councillors out of 10 and a new mayor. So you know, nine out of 11 faces around the council chambers are new. And a lot of them seem to be really keen to kind of make their mark, which is understandable. And so they're introducing tons of motions, a lot of which have to do with housing. And yeah, there's, there's just a lot going on. And it's going to, I think it's going to continue to be really interesting. And there's been some surprises. They don't always vote the way you think they're going to vote. And they don't always, you know, yeah. the NPA councillors haven't always voted as a block. The Greens haven't always voted together. There's kind of some, I'm sure there's some interesting horse trading going on behind the scenes, but a lot of what we see in council chambers is they're kind of debating it and negotiating on the on kind of on the fly. It's it's interesting. Good. That's a good point for me to wrap up now, but also to say we want you to come back regularly and Please. keep giving us updates. Great. Thanks. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time when my guest will be Vancouver City Councilor Gene Swanson, Sauter School of Business Professor Tom Davidoff, and Cressy Development's Hanny Lamam as we look at ways to increase the supply of rental housing. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show.